We are encountering silence. Encountering Silence is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Please visit patreon.com forward slash encountering silence to learn more about how you can be part of the circle and share in our efforts to bring silence into our all too noisy world. Back in the spring of 1988, I was living in Atlanta and on occasion would worship at All Saints Episcopal Church near the campus of Georgia Tech. On more than one occasion, I was impressed by the preaching of one of the associate priests on staff, the Reverend Barbara Brown Taylor. I never joined that church, and I don't know if I ever even spoke to Taylor, but I remembered her. So that when, almost a decade later, Baylor University published a list of the 12 most effective preachers in the United States, I was not surprised to see Barbara Brown Taylor on the list, even though by then she was serving as the pastor of literally a small country church in the mountains of North Georgia. But she was destined for greater things, and her memoir about leaving parish ministry to become a college professor, leaving church, was met with widespread acclaim. Subsequent books like An Altar in the World, Learning to Walk in the Dark, and Holy Envy have all earned places on the New York Times bestseller list. In 1997, she delivered a series of lectures on preaching at Yale Divinity School, later published under the title, When God is Silent. Her most recent book, Always a Guest, was published in October 2020 by Westminster John Knox Press. Barbara Brown Taylor has served on the faculties of Piedmont College, Emory University, Mercer University, Columbia Theological Seminary, the Oblate School of Theology, and the Certificate in Theological Studies program at Arendale State Prison for Women in Alto, Georgia. She has won numerous awards, including twice being named Georgia Author of the Year in the category of inspirational writing. She lives on a farm in North Georgia with her husband. Barbara Brown Taylor, welcome to Encountering Silence. Well, you've just struck me dumb, Carl, so I'm happy to be here. Thank you. <laughs> well, we like silence, so, so there you go. We often begin our conversation by just asking about your relationship with silence. Has there been a special or particular time in your life when you had a meaningful encounter with silence? There have been so many that the choices are um, astounding. I knew that question was coming up and I thought, well, is that my silence or the silence of the world around me? Is it a busy silence or a still silence? Is it a fearful silence or a blissful silence? Um, to choose one, um, my first experience of almost total silence in the world around me, a camping trip in the Sinai Desert in 1990 when I was spending a month at St. George's College in Jerusalem. It was a sensate silence, which I think is why it had such a big impact on me because I'm an intuitive type. So to enter a desert for the first time where there either was no sound or every sound was soaked up by sand, but no creatures below, no airplanes above, nothing for miles, unprecedented, startling welcome. 
And all of a sudden, this huge riot of noise inside, ba-bum, 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 these wheezing lungs. And this little static electricity I learned really is the sound of my nervous system. So uh, that was how long ago? 30 years ago now? And I can call it back in a second. And to answer your question, all types of silence are fair game <laughs> on, on this podcast. In fact, we, we are often very interested in the silences that are not necessarily the blissful, pieced out silence, although we love those, but the silence that terrifies, the silence that represents injustice or oppression. We need to talk about those silences too. Mm -hmm. And the Mysterium Tremendum, that's terrifying at times, right? Yeah, absolutely. And the joy of this podcast has been exactly the what you uh, described the fact that there is so much nuance here when we talk about silence. And then as Carl said, we've explored that uh, across the board for the last three years now. I can't believe it's been that long. But mm. we started off, I think, the three of us kind of thinking about the mystical, the contemplative, uh, and some of those things that f bled into psychology uh, and other things. But we also had our eyes on the radar of injustice and silencing of people. Uh, we, we've had our eye on fear, uh, on, on anxiety, it's, and those things as well. But I think we originally were thinking about that positive silence that you're describing here that is just not on our cultural maps. Uh, mm -hmm. And so I love your answer because I'm, I'm kind of curious— have you used that experience, that kind of sensate, powerful, where you finally were noticed, or you noticed, I should say, that mm -hmm. yourself and the world, does that feed your understanding of what you do when you preach? I'm sure this isn't an answer to your question, but I am aware the, the older I've gotten, the longer I have stood behind microphones in front of people, I... I do what we just did together. I take 30 seconds. I, nah, that, I wouldn't dare take that long. But, I, but I, I take my stand and I look at people and I love them. And I remember everything I've done is because I care about the words that will go back and forth. So I think that's the chief place is to achieve a still place before I fill it with noise. <laughs> Barbara, Carl mentioned a series of lectures that you gave on the art of preaching called When God is Silent. Mm -hmm. And this, for many people of faith, is a really difficult concept, the silence of God. And my mind goes back to when I was attending an Episcopal church in Santa Monica, and my priest there once said, God is absent in God's presence, and God is present in God's absence. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering about this idea of the silence of God, about this idea of the absence of God, how do you see us actually encountering or experiencing God through silence? One thing to note before I answer that, I wrote a book called Learning to Walk in the Dark, and it occurs to me darkness is the visual equivalent of silence at the audio level. And I think that darkness and silence are frightening to a lot of people, and, and it depends on what kind, as I said earlier. But um, I think I started that line of thought for those preaching lectures, you know, hunting for the irony, surely, to do lectures on preaching that were about the silence of God, but also because I'd encountered that silence myself. And if I started with scripture, it was terrifying silence. 
you know, it went all the way from the prophetic kinds of judgment, God saying, I will turn my face from you. I will listen to you no more. Um, I looked at the gospels, Matthew and Mark, God's silence in the face of Jesus' last question. But finally, the idea that silence might be one of God's languages and that it wasn't always about judgment and abandonment, we can get to that later, was a huge relief. Um, that it might even be a divine invitation to listen in instead of listen out. Um, it, it might be an invitation to find out what, what words came from inside of me instead of wherever I thought God was outside of me. And that led me you know, to the sound of sheer silence, which is not a still small voice in Hebrew. It's a sound of fine silence in Hebrew, which I love. So, so the lectures ended up, I think, helping the listeners and me as my primary listener to get more of the nuance of God's silence and to embrace the possibility that might be a love language as well as a language of judgment or absence. Wow. It's a love language. That, that's, I, I, that's an absolutely beautiful uh, summary of the kind of the Christian, mystical, contemplative, you know, God, we find God in the cloud, in the darkness, mm -hmm. the, in the silence, the sheer silence that you say in Hebrew, that it's, it's interesting to me uh, how powerful the mystical theological language in the tradition doesn't always filter into average pews, that, that I bump mm -hmm. into places that people don't realize that there's, that this is there. And so for you to say that, you know, in those lectures and, and to preach that, I think it's just so important for those who are struggling, as Cassidy said, with that silence. What does that mean? You know, and to th see it as a love language is just, it's a lovely turn of phrase for that. Hmm. Oh, thank you. It's the lunar, the lunar theme yeah. in scripture, not the solar, yeah. the solar theme. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Wonderful. Barbara, since you mentioned learning to walk in the dark, uh, I would actually love to read a, a brief excerpt from that. Uh, you write beautifully in that book about visiting Oregon Cave, I believe it is, in West Virginia. Mm -hmm. uh, you and your companions were plunged into darkness and silence. And you wrote, uh, there is not a sound to be heard in this cave. My ears are as blind as my eyes. Up to now, the quietest I have ever been was the Sinai Desert, where I sat in silence so thick that it felt like a presence. It was completely alien and completely comforting at the same time, like being back in my mother's womb, only quieter, since I could not hear the beat of her heart or the bellows of her lungs. I could hear mine like never before, but beyond all that, all I could hear was nothing. Nothing for so long that when I finally heard an airplane approaching, I looked up to see a desert fly coming at me instead. And when I read that the first time and when I revisited it, um, preparing for this interview, of course, the image that it evoked for me was the desert mothers and fathers. Mm -hmm. That, you know, being in the Sinai Desert, you were in their neighborhood, you know, mm -hmm. their, their region. So I, I'm curious what, well, first of all, if you just want to kind of imagine with us, you know, how do you think the silence shaped 
the experience of the desert mothers and fathers. And how do you think, and I'm going to use your, your beautiful image of the love language. How does this love language teach us or how can it teach us? What wisdom can it impart upon us? Gosh, you make me want to go back to the Sinai desert and tell you about the beetles that crawled under my sleeping bag and how dirty I was for how long. So let's get, when I imagine the desert mothers and fathers, it's all romance. <laughs> and I forget the insects, you know, even Jesus didn't talk about the insects in the desert, but okay, we'll set that aside. Here's what occurs to me is when I romanticize or when I project on their experience and, and what I hope I've learned from long, long study admiration of their almost Zen koan stories is that I recognize three kinds of stages in my life of faith. And the first one was about the wisdom or the love out there, the constructive work at the beginning of faith. I was taking it all in. I was setting out on my journey. I was reading and listening and talking. And then somewhere in the middle, it was like wisdom or love moving into me. And, and I got busy with the renovative work in the middle of faith where I tested it and repaired it and kept some and let some go. And it was Phyllis Tickle's yard sale. And then the stage I'm in now, wisdom has moved in, love has moved in and, and not called me out, but called me into communion. And this feels like now I'm at the desert mothers and fathers, because I think of them as very there, the relinquishment at the at the end of faith where I'm not taking it all in, I'm not testing it, I'm breathing. And, and the image that comes to mind is a hospice, but not for people who are dying, but a lodging for travelers where the journey is a place of rest for the night. So when I think about the desert mothers and fathers, they comfort me in stage three the relinquishment of the talk and the busyness and the productivity, unless it's a nice basket and even playing tricks on strangers who want to come and ask me to be wise for them <laughs> to just fool with them somehow. So, so that's what I take from, from my imagination of them. Our conversation will continue after this brief moment of silence. Please take a break with us and be present in this short period of silence. Barbara, I'm struck that your work is not only this journeying and sharing, but it's also a deep vulnerability and openness. You seem to just always be willing to, to risk and to go there. I'm thinking about your book, Holy Envy in particular. But I want to ask about your most recent book, Always a Guest, which is a collection of sermons and talks you've given in a variety of churches and other settings. So this, this idea of journeying. And I'm wondering if 
silence plays a role in your preparation for uh, giving sermons and or for writing. And what discernment takes place when you decide to be vulnerable? What kind of discernment um, happens for you that allows you to go there, so to speak? I love that you think I decide to be vulnerable. (laughs) (laughs) It feels more like a kind of learning disorder on my part, but always a guest is kind of a partner volume because leaving church was a real upsetting book for some people. And I didn't leave church. I left parish ministry, but always a guest is a collection of sermons since then of the 20 plus years of guest preaching. Either place I preach though, a home parish or a visitor, silence has two big roles for me. One is the preparation time is all silence. And it feels like going into Oregon Cave again, Carl, where the preparation, once the reading is done, it's just about going deeper and deeper and deeper. And usually the questions, Cassidy, are like, is this true? Why does it matter? What's the argument with this? How could I argue against myself about this? Not that I'm usually pressing an argument, but that just takes me down and down and down or in and in and in to the point I'm just in co-eight when I come out. I just, I stumble around and bump into doorknobs and I'm a mess. But the, the second part of it is taking time off between that and whenever the words will come out of my mouth. There's, there's a lovely take a break silence in there where I may do things that have nothing to do with the task that's coming up on Sunday. But have I, is that close to what you asked me? Like what role does silence play in that? But that book in particular was also the silence of being very aware. I was a stranger speaking to strangers and that didn't happen in my own parish. They didn't give me a break because of last Sunday or next Sunday. It was putting all the the money on the roulette table. Although really they just wanted to sing the hymns. And and be there for the prayers. Yeah, that was that was wonderful. And I think unpacking that a little more, one of the reasons it came up for me is that I just recorded a sermon for this Sunday. I serve as a student pastor at a UCC church that's entirely about doubt and questions. Mm-hmm. And I talk about how doubt belongs to faith in the same way that mystery belongs to God. Mm-hmm. And I think one of my questions for you is we take a risk when we're leading people by our questions and our doubts in within a faith that like you say in Holy Envy asks our belief. And so I still see you as a risk taker Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, because, because we do take the risk of losing our jobs or, you know, as women speaking up and speaking out and being clear about doubts and questions being a fruit of faith. Mm -hmm. So where am I going with this, Barbara? That's the real question. I know where you're going with this. No, I don't. Oh, but, take but, me but, there, please. <laughs> I will say I completely recognize the territory. And in some ways, it's why I was ripe for leaving parish ministry. Because those stages I talked about a minute ago, I mean, one day I looked out and I said, most of these folks are in the constructive phase. And if they're not, their children are. And and they're here because they're still working on this, putting this together and holding on to this because it's saving their lives in some way. But I was not there to work on the relinquishment of whatever I mean by that with faith. It, it wasn't a time to go into 
apophatic experience of God. That's not what church was about. It was expressive. It was cataphatic. I, those words are ridiculous to use because nobody knows what they mean, including me. But, but I do think to stand up in front of a microphone and to have people give you the gift of their mostly attention is huge. And it's also PG-13. You can't go super, super far if there's a confirmation class sitting there. So, so the challenges of public speech about the truth is difficult. And we'll always have boundaries that writing doesn't have on it. You're reminding me of a conversation we had on this podcast with Cynthia Bourgeau. Mm -hmm. And um, one of my kind of things, as you know, I've written about the mystical tradition in Christianity. And, you know, so one of my bugaboos is, you know, can't we bring mysticism into the parish? And I mentioned that to Cynthia and she just pushed right back at me. And she said, mysticism doesn't belong in the parish. Hmm. And I think it was, she was alluding to really this very same dynamic that you're speaking of here, mm -hmm. that there is that constructive culture mm -hmm. that, that the parish is its natural habitat. Mm -hmm. And so it is a challenge, I think, for many clergy, I don't think you're the only one by any stretch, mm -hmm. who maybe feel that they're being called deeper into the desert. And they, it's like they don't know how to minister to people who, through no fault of anybody's, mm -hmm. are simply at a different point, a you know, different spoke of the wheel. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, I think that's so important. And I'm glad this conversation's coming up. But I, I feel like, I remember when Cynthia said that to us, and I... I enjoyed the pushback and I took it and I thought, wow, she's right. I have pushback again now, though, I, I think, because hearing your answer, Barbara, I was struck. And, and, and in light of Cassidy's question, like, where am I going with this? I think there is a constructive place. I, I completely agree with that piece and the way you've described it and that sometimes we need to walk away I myself have felt that, that this is not the place that I should be saying my things. I should be walking and doing it in another place. I'm being called to something deeper. And I don't think this audience here needs this gift yet. They're doing, they're doing other work. But, but if we're going to talk about the love language of silence that God speaks to us, I think with Carl, I'm kind of asking the question, Let's make sure that the constructive peace is built on actually reaching toward God and not some idol, not some what I think God is. Some, you know, I, that's what I worry about. I ask myself that question. Am I opening to God or am I opening up to my projections? And so I think that hard part of the construction of faith does eventually lead to that that fearful place that you talked about <laughs> the mysterium you know that 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 scary place is part of the path and so as cassidy's asking that deep question of how do we do this with care and vulnerability not to cause harm to build up to speak love language and not destructive language but also to be honest and to ask those hard questions. That's why I agree with Cassidy. I think you're very vulnerable. I think Cassidy's right, that you're doing the work in a profound way. Your words are still, as cataphatic as they are, they're still apophatic, whatever those mm -hmm. words mean. 
I love that. <laughs> I'm, I'm just going to sit with that for a minute or two. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think if I were in parish ministry again, I've become a real fan. I hate to use the word small groups, that phrase, but there's a way in which the Sunday proclamation is one thing, but then the ways that any church that is a community of people all over the path, you know, like breakout rooms, right? Breakout groups, because there can be breakout groups for people with kids who are just trying to answer the first hard questions. And there are breakout groups for those who are at the relinquishment place and breakout groups for the constructive ones. But I, and I also think because a number of you are preachers, there's a way in which the text for the day will lead you different places. And I think to honor the text is to get some very talkative texts and some very quiet texts. So that's, um, you've got me thinking. And I think another thing related to this whole topic that we're discussing, I think that imagining that we or the church belongs in a construct or a system also assumes bounds upon the church and its people. And obviously that's just not what Christianity or Jesus is about. Um, and those constructs and systems were created from the broken constructs and systems of existing cultures. So, my question with that, Barbara, is what book was the most difficult for you to write that felt like the most boundless expression or the most free step into the mystery of faith for you in your personal life? Oh, leaving church was hard on all kinds of levels, and I wrote it a little too early. So if we go back to the terrifying silence, it's like, how do I talk now? I, I don't say we believe, we are gathered here, we are called. This is just me now. So I'm in this first person narrative, which is hugely vulnerable, as you said, because you can become a, a raging narcissist in about 10 seconds, you know, assuming everybody's dealing with what you're dealing with. Um, or you can do that kind of sharing where people go, ew, go talk to your therapist. I mean, <laughs> come back when you've got this worked out a little more. So, um, but leaving church was by far the hardest. It felt in many ways, I wouldn't have said this at the time, but to talk about some of my difficulties with parish ministry was like talking about my alcoholic parent or something. You know, it was like people were appalled that I would, I would break some consecrated silences about not the truth of parish ministry, for heaven's sake, I know people who love it and thrive on it and want to do it forever, but my problems with it. And it, wow, did I get punished <laughs> for that? So so it was a time of rediscovering how I would use language and then a real change in my idea of the readership and then dealing with a, a lot of snapback about that. And that helped because most people who were mad at me left and just didn't read my stuff anymore. So that was great. How did you, on your website, you describe yourself as, I think you say, I say things you're not supposed to say. How did you come to see yourself that way? Or, or is that something a marketing person came up with? No, but the guy who helped me design that did say, you got to come up with something at the top of the page. If there's not <laughs> going to be a photo, you need something. So um, so he encouraged me to boil it down. And and it's interesting you asked that then, because it did have a lot to do with leaving church and having 
written that. And mercy, the people I heard from on the other side, I mean, people in high places, presidents and bishops and seminary professors who said, oh, I would never have said that, but I'm really glad you did. And that got to be a touchstone, I think, for ministry and writing both, that when people said, I would never have said that, but I'm glad you did, I thought I was the only one. That's a redemptive thing to be on either side of. So that pretty much strengthened my my resolve to go ahead and say a few things. I mean, now I'm so outranked by Nadja Boltz Weber and all kinds of people who say all kinds of stuff I would never say. So it's, I, I'm a real now kindergartner at that. But anyhow, um, it seems worth it to say a few things people would never say out loud so they don't feel like they're the only ones because I've been saved that way a lot by other people. We, we all have our place on the on the wheel or on the spectrum you know <laughs> this is the end of the first part of a two-part interview the conclusion to this interview will be released in our next episode next week we are encountering silence i'm carl mccollman to learn more about me please visit carlmccolman.com. I'm Cassidy Hall. Find out about my work at cassidyhall.com. I'm Kevin Johnson. My current website is kevinmichaeljohnson.com. Please visit the podcast's website at encounteringsilence.com, where you can learn more about each of our episodes and find links to purchase books and other resources we discuss on the podcast. When you make a purchase through a link we provide, the podcast receives a small affiliate commission from Amazon.com. Thank you for doing so. Please also visit patreon.com forward slash encountering silence to learn more about how you can be part of our circle of supporters and share in our efforts to bring meaningful conversations about silence to our all too noisy world. Thank you.